Hi, you're listening to Ember Island Airwaves. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And we're going to be discussing the uh, second episode of Book 4 of The Legend of Korra, which is called Korra Alone. So, a um, bit of a different experience than last week. Actually, a very, <laughs> a very different experience, I, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. You, you were, uh, I remember last week you were complaining there wasn't enough Korra. Yeah, so. I was very happy. Um, <laughs> very pleased. And, I mean, this episode sets itself up with such high expectations right off the bat by invoking Zuko alone. Um, just, you know. Which is a, one of the best episodes of... I, I would say, actually, Zuko alone is really... And later I, I want to talk about... There's a lot of interesting parallels. Um, yeah, I noticed them too. Yeah, the more I watched, the more I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Uh, and they're not obvious. It's not like, you know... It's not like a direct mirror sort of thing. It's They're more subtle than that. But... Um, but that episode was really where Avatar The Last Airbender, I think, for me, became a show that was clearly better than pretty much any other animated show I had seen um, up mm-hmm. to that point. Because it was an episode exclusively focused on ostensibly a villain. And, and up until, I would say, really book three, Zuko is a villain. So, um, and yet he was so well-developed and so interesting to follow, and they had given him so much to do up to that point and change and grow that you could run a whole episode off of that character. And that, and that to me, like, I had never seen a show that gave the, the villain the time of day like that. And I thought that was... The Beach did a similar thing in book three because that was a lot about the, you know, Ty Lee and May and, and Azula and Zuko. But I think Aang and, and the crew were in that a little bit. But in Zuko alone, it's just Zuko for an entire episode, and I thought that was really interesting. So it was really cool to see this episode named, you know, Korra alone, because it's, you know, this, for me, a you know, very landmark uh, episode from the last se- uh, series. Yeah, that is definitely. Um, it's funny, I just watched uh, the first season of The Last Airbender over the weekend with my five-year-old sister, who she's never seen it. Oh, wow. And I think it's, it's really cool how, like, very early on, they're drawing these um, not necessarily thematic parallels at that point but definitely visual parallels between Aang and Zuko there's really? a lot of there's a lot of stuff with like um uh, match cuts between them where like you know Aang will start a motion and then it'll cut to Zuko like completing that motion or just cuts between you know between them and they'll be in the same position in the frame it's very interesting before there's even that reveal in the blue spirit that you know uh, which is kind of the first indication that Zuko may not be is isn't just like a very uh, one-dimensional bad guy, so it's it's interesting that they laid those seeds very early on, and you're right, I think they definitely like they really bring that home with Zuko alone. Even to the point where they there's there's a connection between them that's even deeper than anything. I mean, uh, Ursa's related to Roku, so I mean he's related to a past life of Aang. So like in a way, there I mean they're not perhaps by blood, but at least spiritually, they're clearly connected. I mean, they make that very clear later on when we finally learn that bit. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's interesting, and I didn't even... I'd have to go back and watch. I didn't realize they were doing uh, things, you know, in terms of cinematically, you know, uh, to, to link them up. But yeah, yeah, so it was it was a big episode, basically, is, yeah. is what we're getting at. Um, so... Uh, How'd you feel? How'd you feel about the the choice? I mean, there were flashbacks in this. We did get a little bit of what happened in the interim period, as we suspected we might. Oh, by the way, we were totally wrong about the name. Just want to point that out. Yeah, we, not even close. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it, it seems like you were right. There was no there was no citation on that at all. That was just a random blog. Yeah, I was curious about that. Definitely, because I it, it's you know it's not so ridiculous that it couldn't be uh, the name of a Legend of Korra episode, but I it when I they. They tweeted that out on um, a couple days before the episode aired. I was like, "Oh, interesting," because you know, not as not only is that not the title that we thought it would be, but it's like we just said, a very intriguing title. In yeah, itself. and evocative in a lot of yeah, ways yeah. of the of the first. But this this episode is interesting because it, it it's evocative of a lot of things from the from Korra as well. Uh, there's a lot of parallels here too, um, which we can talk about. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess right now we. Um, so it starts with Korra, um, we're sort of catching up with, it picks up right after her, uh, her fight, uh, from the last episode. Um, but then we get some flashbacks on what it's been like for her, 
uh, transitioning out of, you know, being in a wheelchair after her, you know, traumatic experience with the here. And, uh, I, I really like the, the letter writing sequence where we, where we get to hear the letters from the different people who, I feel like it pretty much captured them where Asami clearly comes off as the most interesting and most relatable <laughs> and, and best character. Um, you know, Mako makes some terrible joke. Uh, about you know small talk when that's all he does it seems like anyway so um so i was like yep that's pretty much him then bolin does some weird you know he's like all literary and uses flowery language and stuff talking about how he's working with kavira and it's really only asami who's like you know i'm signing contracts i'm getting the city on the right track i hope you're doing well you know i i'd love to hear how you're doing and she just sounds like a normal person (laughs) i don't know it's just I, i i but i really like the sequence yeah, I loved that little drop in um, Bolin's letter that's, you know, very ca- treated by the show very cavalierly. Like, oh, and I'm, you know, I've uh, found work with Kuvira. I'm going to be helping her out. And it was like, wow, that's that's so funny that that's something they don't even, even now, in, in now that they're in these flashbacks, they're not dwelling on or explaining in any way. Well, maybe so it did. wasn't clear that she was going to become this, you know, three years later she's conquering, you know, she's conquered the entire Earth Kingdom or whatever she's done to you know, unite them or or unify them or or whatever. But I guess at that point she was just an officer. She wasn't really anyone. So maybe that's why it wasn't such a big deal. And even later, Tenzin at some point says, um, you know, things in the Earth Kingdom are better since uh, Kuvira has taken charge. Yeah. And since Tenzin is usually like, from just from a, a writer perspective, he's the voice of reason. So when he says something, it's probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that they gave him that line that, indicates that even the, you know at that point in the show i think that was only a year before we we picked up at, in the last episode so it's it's very interesting that even someone as you know intelligent and even i don't know i don't want to say skeptical because i don't know how much evidence there is of that in the show but you know what i mean as someone like that right and like, he, has, he has forethought and he thinks about things and he's he's trying to you know he's thinking about the big picture quite often yeah yeah exactly and it's so, clear that there's like split between the airbenders and what Kavir is doing later on, at least as far as Opal's concerned. So, yeah, no, you're right. And I, I noticed that, that, that Tenzin seems to think it's, it's fine, you know? Um, so yeah, I like that. And also in that same letter with, with Bolin, uh, they got a weird soccer reference in. So, um, so that was another callback where he, you know, he sends a bunch of, a bunch of pictures of that. <laughs> oh, I loved that. That was so funny. <laughs> that was cute, but it was also like, that's, that's a soccer thing. You, yeah. You just stole that <laughs> for Bolin, who's also a terrible artist. Okay. It was such a weird, like, I don't know. Clearly he was supposed to be, like, the soccer-like character for this. And, you know, okay, oh, yeah, so yeah. I, I just want to make clear that when I complain that, I'm not complaining that he's not exactly like Sokka, and so, like, I don't want him to be, like, really smart, and also the, like, I don't want him to be the same character as Sokka, but the problem is is that he's a goofball, but unlike Sokka, doesn't seem to have redeeming features, so it confuses me as to like what con- contribution he has yeah that's interesting well especially having you know just rewatched season one it's very clear how much bolin's sense of humor is meant to evoke Sokka's sense of yeah. humor mm-hmm. the, the, like the just the um but why doesn't it I, for me i don't know why it doesn't work the same way like it's well it's, i think it's exactly what you just said it's that with Sokka, he could be goofy but at the end of the day, he also was a very intelligent military strategist, and he could also, like, there are points where he just, he drops the goofiness and he makes the tough call, and he has to be the logical one and say, no, this is what we have to do. He, you know, much less so than Aang and Katara was, you know, didn't let emotion drive his decisions, whereas Bolin is the goofball. And much less so than, um, well, maybe not less so than Korra, but most, much less so than maybe Mako and Asami. He is, he he doesn't have that other side of him where he can flip off the goofiness. Right, exactly. And it, and it, it doesn't really come to anything, anything that's, that's weird to me. And also the first time we're introduced to Sokka, um, I mean, we see that there's the, we have the intro sequence, but when the Fire Nation shows up, I mean, I think the moment that really defines his character is when Zuko shows up with his, like, Fire Nation soldiers and they're all professionals and he charges Sokka charges him with a boomerang and then gets like knocked over you know and it's the I mean and we see a total reverse of that later on where he's 
he's very serious, he's trained with a sword, he knows how to do a lot of stuff, and he's very mature by the end of book three. But, uh, you know, when we first, that, that moment really captures him where, like, even though he can't bend, even though he can't do a bunch of other stuff, he still, you know, is going to, you know, try and do what's right, and he has a very strong moral compass. And You know, I think maybe Sokka's lack of bending is humbles him, in a way. You know what I mean? It just we, makes, yeah, it gives him a lot. Maybe they figured because Bolin can bend, they're like, oh, we don't have to. But, like, you still have to, like, add something. I don't know. Yeah, there's there was definitely, like, an imp- more than an implication, probably with Sokka, that the fact that he couldn't bend, you know, he had to make his uh, his mind a better weapon than than the people he would be facing, in terms just in terms of uh, of uh, strategy and planning. Whereas, and I, also, I think Sokka, um, he gets his comeuppance a lot more than Bolin ever does. Yeah, like I was going to say, the other characters are often chagrined with, with Sokka. Especially in season one with Sokka, and especially with, like, um, well, like, right off the bat with the Warriors of Kyoshi. He is, uh, gets a complete turnaround. He's not presented as redeemable, as, um, I don't want to say likable, but because I don't like that word in relation to char- fictional characters, but he's not presented as a as good a person as he becomes. I mean, in the very first scene of the series... Katara openly calls him a, a sexist person. Like, she uses the word sexist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting on a Nickelodeon show a decade ago. Like, I, it's very... From a, from a 12-year-old character. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Sokka, they, they allow Sokka to overcome that and to become a better person. And I think what it comes down to, ultimately, and I, we've, been t- we've been talking about uh, The Last Airbender for a while, <laughs> what it comes down to, ultimately, is um, I think... Uh, the Last Airbender was uh, focused on characters mm-hmm. and who these people were and what happened to them and the ways they developed. And character development was really the focus. Whereas in Korra, I think thematic development is much more the focus. Yeah. And it's much... And also know, plot. Exactly, yeah. It's much more interested in what every th- like, n- not only what's happening, but what that means and what it's about than it is, like, than it's concerned with what these characters are doing and what that means for them and how they're changing and, and developing. There's not a lot of character well, development in Well, I wouldn't say that's true of maybe the last two seasons, and I think that's the thing, is that once they had the time, as we've talked about, I think they've decided, oh, we have time to do that. I think they figured what we can do is thematic parallels. We can do interesting things there. We don't have time to really develop the characters in a way that's going to be, you know, that's going to hold a candle to the other series, so we won't, we won't do that. But now they have that option, and so they are. Like, I think Mako's developed in interesting ways. I think oh, Asami's true, yeah. developed in interesting ways. I don't think Bolin's developed in interesting <laughs> He's the outlier. For but sure. certainly Korra the most. I mean, her. Yeah, especially in this episode. Yeah. And just these past two seasons has been dramatically different than the first two seasons. And I but think, it's... yeah. So I, I think that that's, I think that's, there's, there's a clear difference there. Although, I agree with you, but I feel like Mako and Asami's, uh, maybe less so with Korra, but Mako and Asami's development has been, has, I feel like it's happened in the background. Oh, no, yeah, um, no, it's certainly not center stage in any way, but it's it's certainly yeah, it's more than we yeah. got before. Exactly, yeah, well, well, I mean, like, we opened book three with Mako is now <laughs> like this, <laughs> and um, Asami's, you know... I feel like with Asami's Asami's such an interesting character because I feel like this is the person Asami always was, but you know, the, you know, what happened to her father and her having to kind of deal with that allowed that person to kind of uh, develop and to come out full force, and that she is now this, you know, very she's a very powerful CEO essentially of this powerful corporation. She's actually more like Sokka, except for the the humor part. She's a lot like Sokka. I mean, the the big thing with not in terms of, like, their their fathers were very different, but Sokka was a kid and left behind, couldn't bend, although I don't think his father can bend either, um, but was left behind to, uh, I guess, sort of look after the village by his father, which was really sweet. And you, you, you learn about that very quickly, and he clearly was always, like, a chip on his shoulder. And when he finally sees his father again, and his dad's treating him like a soldier and, you know giving him the time of day it's just so because he's older and he's more mature or whatever and um that's such a great moment but the first when we first meet him he's clearly he's upset that he wasn't able to go and you know so he feels like he was left behind and then he feels very protective of his sister and of the village and i think with asami uh in a different way she and so he sort of had to fill the role of his father and so asami had to do the same thing fill the role that her father 
was awful at because he turned out to be like crazy and evil, um, or at least an equalist. I don't, you know, arguably not evil, but certainly nefarious in, in different ways. Um, but you know, she's she, you know she has the ingenuity. She has a lot. She has a lot of qualities. I think that we saw in Saga, and she also can't bend. You know, she has that glove, which is awesome. But it's you know it's not bending. You know, I wonder if this has something to do with the fact that the last Airbender had this. You know. I think we've talked about this in past episodes. It had this uh, plot undercurrent that was always driving it, and that's, you know, defeat the Fire Lord. And after a couple episodes, it's defeat the Fire Lord before this happens. <laughs> um, and that was always in the background of everything that happened, and I think that allowed them to focus more on the characters and to fo- We have so many great episodes of that show about just the details of this world and the things that were happening in this world, and, the th- you know, th- they could get into interesting thematic things through that and not through not necessarily whereas the main plot was very like you know very old school good guy bad guy stuff um which is why you you know we ha- we don't really get episodes like the warriors of kiyoshi where they get to explore those themes just in one half hour this is you know we're exploring this we don't really get that in Korra, mm-hmm. but we get instead these season-long arcs where the foreground is that and it's this one thing for the whole season and instead the character it's it switched so we get the, the characters and the details kind of take the backseat. Right, yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's, that's true, but I think one of the things they did is they gave this season more of an overall arc, um, or the last two seasons where there was bigger things happening. Like, we knew from the beginning that here was... Like, it took a while for Unalak to develop into a bad guy, and Amon, I guess we knew pretty... I mean, we like we knew Unalak was probably the bad guy pretty quickly, but, um, but like... It, Zaheer is introduced as a villain, and Kuvira seems to be in similar, you know, following a similar tack. And I think that's what they're sort of mini Fire Lord arcs, you know, like they're they're always there. So like we can have a whole episode about Korra, knowing full well that Kuvira, you know, will be an issue at some point. Yeah, and by the... whereas it was a little bit more difficult before because we had to, you know, like they had to cram all of an arc about Amon into an episode when we also didn't know anything about Korra, or into a season, we didn't know anything about Korra, we didn't know anything about any of the people, so they had to fit all that into one season to varying degrees of success. You know, it's funny, um, I think the closest that Korra has ever come to really replicating the feel of a Last Airbender episode is last season with original Airbenders, and having just recently rewatched the whole series, I think that might be my least favorite episode of Korra. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because Because it's so close that it... I think that episode, um, I think the problem with that episode is that we're, Because uh, I really like that episode. I'm, I'm sad that you don't. I, I, well, I think it's maybe just because I'm revisiting it in the context of the whole, seeing the whole season relatively, you know, close together, because we've just got these episodes where uh, we're developing, uh, the, well, the Red Lotus is becoming more and more of a threat, and we're getting more interesting stuff about the Metal Clan and Lin and Suyin, and we've just kind of have this episode that's about, uh, people at the air temple goofing off and then not goofing off um i think revisiting it on its own might it it might uh, work better but like i've said in the past i think cora functions best when it's doing these um very continuous arcs where episodes just kind of lead into the next and it feels like one big episode so original airbenders is kind of a weird outlier and we really should, we really should talk about Korra alone we should we episode. should but i just want to point out that i know you would be complaining we didn't get enough of the new airbender culture if we didn't get that episode that's true i would <laughs> you'd be like yeah but we haven't really seen you know we should be getting some ang type stuff going on that's exactly what we got in that episode that's true yes we got more airbender culture in that episode like not in terms of history and all that stuff but in terms of you know what airbender culture society might be like than we ever got prior to that because all we got was Aang's flashbacks with you know with Monkeyazzo which were cool but they weren't as fleshed out as that was so that was like an airbender nation new and from different places and they're sort of rough around the edges but I, so yeah i think it was good it was good to get that in but Korra alone <laughs> <laughs> So for Korra alone, so we get uh, we get this we get this whole sequence where um, it wasn't a Rocky montage, but it was a um, it was sort of a coming back sequence with Katara and Korra, uh, and we get some interesting dialogue here. Katara gets to say preachy things, which 
she's want to do uh, in the past. And um, so she says she says a bunch of stuff. And I, I actually really like, there's one sequence I really like where she takes Korra to task for... Because, like, you know, I think one of Korra's biggest faults is pride, right? So, you know, she has no humility at all, it doesn't seem like. Or at least she certainly didn't before... You know, she started, you know, right at the beginning of the series, she sort of learned over the course of time. But even up through last season, she was, you know, very cocky about pretty much everything. Um, and I think, uh, and it's 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 toned down. But, you know, even here she's complaining about this event that happened to her. And it's very tough. It's sad, you know, and, and what happened to her is, is awful. But, you know, Katara's like... Yeah, how do you think Aang felt when his entire culture was murdered and everyone he knew was dead and he was 12? You know, like, that <laughs> like that perspective, I've wanted to, you know, everyone has wanted to say that to her who's watching, who knows full well what Aang had to deal with, again, as a 12-year-old. And he had to bear the responsibility of it because he felt like it was his fault for abandoning them, you know, because he feels like he might have been able to do something. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, Korra's having trouble walking and stuff, and that that sucks, but it's just, it just was a great moment, you know, this is a, a reality check for her. That's that's true, I think Katara's tone was a little <laughs> a little different <laughs> than your imitation. Yes. <laughs> but it's true, exactly, what she said is, it was, because function could, that way, yeah. Yes, and she doesn't, she doesn't get all heated, you know, about it, but, um, although Katara certainly did when she was a kid. Uh, yeah, she mellowed out. It's interesting. She has, yeah, she has certainly mellowed out. I feel like they might have changed voice actors. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think I think that it's also just that, that wasn't how it was scripted. I think it was scripted to be calm. And, but she does seem rattled when Korra's yelling at her, and she's like, you know, other other avatars have had to deal with stuff too. It's it sucks being the avatar. Like, welcome to the world. Because um, you know, Korra was like, I want to be the avatar. It's gonna be the greatest thing ever. But like, it's a lot of work. Anybody who watched Avatar The Last Airbender probably didn't want to be the Avatar. They probably want to be, like, a side character who can yeah, watch the true. Avatar. Because Aang's job sucks. It's, it's awful. And I don't know how you could learn about that history and decide, that's what I want to do. But that was always Korra's point of view. And now she's had to see what it's like. And it's it's hard, you know? That's true. Well, it's um, well. first of all, I think it's you're right. It's funny that I remember when you asked your friends, like, what element would you want to bend? No one says they want to be the Avatar. <laughs> yeah, No one exactly. says that. Because they have one element that they think is cool, and they think it would be cool to bend. And nobody wants to be the Avatar, because it's really hard. And you just want to be able it's to like, bend one element. It's like element you want to be have... president. It's like, it's too much work, you know? It's exactly, like, yeah. lead the country and organize laws. It's like, too much... Uh, it's... Nobody needs what... that. <laughs> what I was going to say about Korra is that, um, I, I think she has a point. Which is that um, Katara's right that what Aang had to deal with, you know, seeing his entire culture destroyed, that's a horrible, horrible traumatic thing. But I think Korra's situation is um, is unique in that this isn't something that she can share with anyone else. You know, Aang seeing um, the ruin of the Air Temple, there's a certainly a pain that he feels, but there's also, like, an understanding that, you know, this is something that a lot of people went through I, I, and this is that's something that that's not something that Cora can can feel this is something that's you know this is a problem that only she has and she can't even take some kind of weird solace in the fact that this isn't some a feeling she's alone in although to be fair Aang you know his whole thing was like I well I'm the, the last airbender I was gonna say he's the last airbender um, yeah I mean if he's alone I, mean. <laughs> I would I would I would just rephrase what you're saying because I think that I think you're right. I think it's more that it's internal versus external, as opposed to alone versus not Because yeah, yeah, I think Aang was very alone, a lot like Korra, but in a different way, where he had internal stuff going on, but a lot of his, you know, you could visually see what had happened, and no other nation had been, you know, killed off entirely, except for his. So There's also Aang's pain is emotional and Korra's is physical, and I think, you know... It... Well, I think it's emotional, too, for Korra. Well, yes, yeah, and I think it, that comes from the physical, I think, and I think maybe the what it really comes down to uh, is that Aang had a an emotional support system, mm -hmm. and, you know, that, that whole scene at, at the Air Temple in the, one of the first episodes, Katara talks him down from the Avatar State because she says, look, we're here for you, mm -hmm. and what Korra says to Katara in this episode is like, look, we've been at this for six months, and you can't even heal me. We've made no progress. And I think that's where her frustration comes from, is knowing that this is a problem that 
you know, she can't fix by herself, and that other people can't really fix for her. And the decision that she makes later on to just kind of go it alone is it's a, it, it's such a you know, crushing moment to watch, you know, this because it really like it, it seems maybe to I feel bad for Cor- I'm not I'm not trying to just say like she she sucks for like being upset. It's totally oh, no. reasonable, <laughs> but I just yeah. it's just that there's you know it's like it's like she's just getting what it means to be the Avatar, and it's it's really sucks. And you know I would compare what happened to Aang in Crossroads of Destiny where he gets. Um, you know, Azula almost kills him. I mean, it's a horrible sequence where he almost dies and almost ends the entire Avatar cycle. Um, and she, the only reason he survives, as, as far as I know, is because Katara uses the last of the spirit water to to heal him. And she was going to use it on Zuko's scar, and that's a really interesting scene. But just, but that's another physical thing, and it takes a long time for Aang to to recover from that as well. And it and it's only because Katara has the spirit water that she's even able to help him. So I would I would draw a parallel there between that and and Korra's you know physical ailment, which she can't really recover from. But part of it is also that it's it's also psych. It, I think it's somatic, but it's also psychosomatic. I think there's actual physical things going on, but also she's feeling you know like she can't do anything, and so she can't do anything. You know what I mean? It's manifesting in her actual ability to complete that's true and i think i think the di- the main difference and i think what i love about Korra alone so much is that uh, that with ang that manifested in a you know kind of fantasy metaphor thing with his inability to access the avatar state with uh, you know the seventh uh, chakra being locked off and, and that kind of thing whereas with Korra, it's a very like down-to-earth very real depiction of physical trauma and physical therapy yes um, although i will say it's also that it's also a question of her not i they reveal in this episode that she can't contact rava anymore it seems like yeah that's so that's interesting yeah, that's a new thing I, that's that's very very confusing to me and i have a th- i have a theory um about that that i don't know how much evidence there is for it but it also ties into this weird vision of herself and the avatar i was just about to bring that up yeah yeah um the two things that she has visions of in this episode are herself in the avatar state and rava right so i think that might be connected somehow yes i would this disconnect from rava is like a taking physical form because it's whatever vision of herself she's seeing that's not just imaginary it because it physically attacks her it has a physical impact on her and not just in the swamp where that can happen right um it happens in the alleyway so this is a definitely like a real and the spirit can see it so it's something if not if it's physical it's something spiritual for sure so i think there might be something you know rava's disconnect um might be literally like that's what happened and it's interesting that it's the version of her with the chains mm-hmm. and would you know, the chain, it's always pulling her, you know, pulling Korra towards this, you know, Avatar state Korra. Right. And that seems malicious, but if it's actually Rava, maybe it's Rava trying to literally pull them back together. That well, would be an interesting twist. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. There's a, well, first of all, I just love the way it's animated. I think it's, it's really cool. It's, um, I'm trying to think of what it reminds me of. Oh, I know exactly what it reminds me of. Okay, it reminds me of, uh, the Puppet Master. When um, yeah, uh, the Bloodbender, oh, I forget what her name is, but she's we've talked about her before, and I, I think it was Hama. Hama. I think it is someone. Yeah, that's it. Good job. Um, <laughs> she's uh, she's when she's you know bloodbending uh, Sokka with his sword and Aang. I don't know if he has anything. Maybe he has a st- his uh, staff or something. But anyway, they're they're sort of like. Uh, being like puppeted around and their like bodies are all limp and you know, their, their arms are outstretched. Anyway, the, just the animation style seems very similar. Um, it, it's just, the, the imagery seemed very similar to me. And I, I thought that was cool just because those, those moments were always cool in the old, in the old series. Um, and, and in the new one, especially in the, in the first season. So, uh, that's cool. But you know, we have this, it's sort of like the spirit is like, um, or this phantom Korra is, is, like limp, but but like moves very very fast, and you know seems kind of dead zombie like, you know, and it's or ghostly, and I, it comes across as creepy, you know. It's a creepy thing to get another very mature element. I think I would argue in a, in a show that's um, that has continued to sort of up the ante with mature elements. 
That's true. She always does kind of stand, like, kind of slumped over. Yeah. And I think it, it's... I, now that I think about it, I think it's intentionally meant to evoke bloodbending. Um, not necessarily, like, you know... That's Literally, yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think it's meant to remind you of what someone who's being bloodbended looks like. And especially with the way that... Controlled, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and when she'll, like... Um, I'm, I'm thinking of in the swamp when she's sinking into the into the mercury and she's just standing completely still, mm-hmm. holding on to Korra. Mm-hmm. That reminded me of that of that too because if you're bloodbending someone in that situation you have no need to move them anymore um, and that also I think happens similarly in the alley just yeah the way that it's the way that the phantom Korra kind of moves her arms like when she whips the chain at, at Korra the first time we see yeah, her yeah still slumped over and then also she, she moves her body in order to move her arm instead of just moving her arm very interesting. Yeah, it's almost like a spirit controlling a human body and not knowing how to use it right. That's, you know what? That's, that's I bet that's maybe what it is, because um, we get introduced to that idea all the way back in beginnings that a spirit can possess a human, and they haven't gone back to it. Oh, yeah. That is a good point. Oh, okay, maybe we crack that. <laughs> um, but, you know, you see that often in things, you know, where you have some alien force not able to, like, work a human body. Men in Black is probably the most... You know, no, just in terms of, you know, like, this weird not human mov- movement because they don't like get the anatomy of like a human person you know um but yeah, yeah go ahead um we also get introduced in this episode to the idea that a spirit can disguise themselves as something else in yes. the mortal world well no we, i mean that's was the the big i'm gonna again i don't remember uh, this is sad because i used to have this encyclopedic knowledge of the original series i have to rewatch it are you gonna refer to the fish the uh Tuyen la no i was actually gonna refer yes that's a good example um but i was actually gonna talk about the big panda spirit thing that when it oh, came into right. the real world it was you know scary and you know very miyazaki like and then when it went into the the spirit world it was just a panda it, it yeah it could kind of transform and it transformed between both um in, we see it transform back into the monster briefly in the spirit world right? Um, in the season one finale. Though I think there is, it felt um, with, with the spirit uh, dog, which definitely was supposed to look like a puppy version of Naga. I was thinking um, that, or at least a little bit like Naga. Yeah, certainly. I actually thought it was at first. I thought maybe they were doing that. And then then it was clear because the face was wrong. It didn't, it didn't seem right. But, but yeah, it was, it was a little white dog. It was something that Korra would trust. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, this the spirit Korra, such an interesting idea. It is. It, and so I think we might have cracked it, but my other, just I'll throw these out just in case they're right. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of ideas. I thought maybe um, it's uh, because it's, I, at first I was like, oh, maybe it's Rava, but the weird maliciousness of it, although it seems to be guiding her. So there's clearly a benevolence to it as well, even though it attacks her. Um, it brings her to from place to place and, you know, it's like, don't go to Republic City. You need to go somewhere else first. Um, but it, it almost seems like a, maybe it's Rava and Vatu together. Um, you know, a small, maybe a little bit of, of Vatu and, and more Rava or something going on there. Um, because now they're back in sort of like, he's not imprisoned in the tree anymore. So he's... He's not, and he can't be gone. He has to exist in some form. So I'm, I'm assuming it's, you know, I, I thought maybe that, that, that could be one explanation. Another explanation is it's a manifestation of her past lives, um, because I am assuming they're going to reconnect at some point, and then maybe permanently, you know, the Avatar cycle will end or something. Um, so that's, that's possible. And then the other, I think, the most literal interpretation I think we can come up with would be that she, it, it simply represents her poison, um, because. She literally turns into mercury, <laughs> yeah. and then like sinks into the ground. So, um, and that also could be something that's just it's it's literally she's she's adding psycho psychological aspects to it, but it's really just the poison. And maybe it represents the trauma from the poison or something, but it literally turns into the poison. So I, it could be any of these things. But if it is a, a spirit sort of trying to work a human body, I, that also I think that probably makes the most sense. Just because it's been introduced and not addressed since. I like the past lives idea. I think that's very interesting because obviously that's what the Avatar state is. And I also like the, um, I mean, I, I think this the easy explanation is, yes, it's, it's just a hallucination. But uh, the fact that it can interact with her physically, I think, is what uh, kind of, exactly, yeah. And also, um, I think maybe the key to this is that it leads her to this cage fight 
and they have this, oh my god, it's such a fantastic scene, where it's revealed that Korra is actually, in her mind, fighting herself. Yep. I mean, oh my god, come on. Oh, but <laughs> nobody else can see. And that's why she's surprised that the dog can see yeah. her phantom self, because nobody can see that she's fighting this phantom Korra during the... But that's so cool, it cuts across her arm, and then the person she's fighting turns from Korra back into the person she's was original. And everyone else in the ring reappears at that point. Yes, and everyone fades back in, and the noise comes back in, and yeah. It, it puts that scene in different context. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Whatever entity this is that we're talking about, for some reason, it, it wanted Korra to go into that ring, and if it's just a manifestation of Korra's subconscious, then maybe it goes back to you know what I floated in our last episode, which is that this is some kind of uh, form of, of punishment for Korra, uh, which isn't totally supported by this episode from what we learn about what she's been up to. So I think I think we can pretty much discount that idea. So it's, it's very uh, very curious that it, this whatever it is led Korra to this cage match of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, No. and then we get, you know, we, we see a little bit of traveling too in this episode. I don't want to discount that. Those were some interesting scenes, especially this doesn't really affect Korra at all, but I did really like when she, she goes and she meets the guy who's like an Avatar fanboy. Oh, yes, I loved that scene. Yeah, and we get we see the picture on the wall with Aang spinning, um, I guess, their rolls, like sushi roll type things. Um, and uh, Or seaweed, he said seaweed wraps or something. And he's spinning them like he did the you know marbles or whatever like he used to do in the original series. And it's the first time we've seen adult... Aang do anything goofy ever he's always so freaking serious in Korra yeah exactly it's ex- I was I was gonna say exactly the same thing because every time we've seen a flashback to him it's very very serious, serious. and while I've most I've mostly liked those moments it in the back of my mind I always was kind of sad that we you know well it was just it was just like I, I don't recognize this like it's cool I don't know who that is he's not Aang you know like exactly yeah I was like it is kind of disheartening that this is who Aang up to and that's why early before this moment when Katara says that uh, what happened to Aang he never let it crush his spirit I thought that's not really supported by what we've seen right um but it is by what we saw after that in that picture such such a great moment and yeah he's making the exact same expression as when he did that move uh in the original series and it's yeah uh, very just updated and and older yeah no definitely I, I thought that was that was really cool and it's like you know when we meet Aang his first line is do you want to go penguin sledding with me and that needs to be in the back of everyone's mind when they ever, whenever they draw or like depict Aang. I just, that's very important. That's how we meet the star of the last series. <laughs> anyway, um, but I like that. So I like that that shot. And then you know she immediately gets her butt handed to her by like petty thieves, um, and we get to see more of her her transition. But I like you know I like these this traveling stuff because we get to see more of the world. You know I hope we get a little bit more of it just because this is like her. You know, this is the first time we're really seeing the rest of anything. You know, we last season we saw a little bit of the Earth Kingdom, which was great because we hadn't seen anything outside of Republic City, really, except for the Water Tribe. Um, but I'm hoping that we'll see more of that either through Korra as she does whatever she's going to do um, or through the other characters because they're going all over the place. Yeah, The scene of her traveling with the voiceover of the letter to her parents was... Oh, I, I loved that scene. And I think it's really fascinating what it says about who, where Korra is at right now, mm. because as a character, Korra has never been the kind of person to pretend to be anything she's not. You know, she, yeah, like what you just said about Aang, the way we're introduced to her in the series is she like kicks down a wall and says, you know, I'm the avatar. You got to deal with it. Uh, and that's who, that's Korra in a nutshell. She is the avatar and that's, you know, and you got to deal with it. it. <laughs> and in this episode, we see this, you know, moment where she's lying to her parents about everything being okay because she wants you know that because that's better than saying what's actually going on with her right and that's such that i think that speaks to a lot of that that, that sums up what what we are seeing from cora in this episode this very just you know she's brought to her lowest point to this point where she can't even she can't well and and what happens with that uh, merchant she cannot accept the responsibility of being the avatar right which we saw at the end of the, fir- or the first episode of the season you know she is she's completely renounced that and she cannot like and she and she 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 makes that big 
gesture by cutting her hair, you know, to specifically, you know, because people recognize her and she doesn't want to be recognized. Also, parallel to Zuko. Uh, yes, and, and I actually want to say, um, I we have to talk about Zuko alone a little bit. And uh, just tying this back to what we started talking about when we were going off on a very long tangent about The Last Airbender, <laughs> the point of all of that, I think, what I wanted to mention is that Zuko really comes across as arguably another, as another, like, perhaps the most important protagonist next to Aang in that series. He has, I mean, as I've said in the past, I think he is the most interesting character development in general. But they draw parallels to them, and, you know, the only, I mean, they give Katara a fairly big finale because she gets to beat Azula. Um, But they give Zuko his own, like, major finale. They don't give Toph anything like that. They don't give Sokka anything like that. You know, they do the airship thing, and it's really, it's great. I'm not discounting it, but in terms of screen time they build up to the azula zuko showdown for a long time and then give him arguably a better finale i mean i would say i like that fight better than um the ozai ang fight but even if you don't you can at least agree that it's a comparable fight and and it's for a character who is again when we meet him is an antagonist but as you said they draw direct parallels between them and the reason i mention that is that um we don't want to just look at comparisons, I would argue, for Korra, between Korra and Aang, but also between Korra and Zuko. And I think this episode does a lot of that. And one of them is, the most obvious one is when she cuts her hair. That doesn't happen in Zuko alone. It happens, I think, maybe an episode before or a couple episodes. It happens um, in the season premiere of book two. And well, another thing I wrote down, uh, that episode's all about the Avatar state, and it opens with Aang having visions where he sees himself in the Avatar state, and it's, you know, very dark and scary. Oh, another- kind of interesting parallel yeah that is interesting and but clearly there's like so they're they're doing the hair thing which is it couldn't be any anything but zuko um because he cuts his his ponytail uh for the better i would argue um, yeah <laughs> uh, but uh he cuts his hair you know shedding his past it's a very clear metaphor um and and iroh does as well uh he cuts his his bun um and we also, and there's also the obviously the Avatar state uh, parallels with Aang. But I think it's interesting they're drawing these 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 connections. And you know, you were talking about this being you know Korra not wanting to accept her identity, and I would argue that whole episode Zuko alone is about that. Um, I know you had you had other thoughts that are, that are there that the show is also about that that episode is also about. Um, but I think that for me that episode is all about you know Zuko. You know, remembering what Iroh said to him, remembering what, you know, Ursa said to him before the last time she saw him, you know, like, you know, never forget who you are. Um, and when he finally decides to reveal to the, you know, Earth Kingdom army thugs that he's the prince of the Fire Nation and he kicks the guy's ass. Um, I think that moment is so, 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 so powerful in like a thousand ways. But most importantly, he knows full well the reputation of the Fire Nation. He knows the Fire Nation royal family. And he still decides, I know what this means to everyone else. I'm going to reinvent it as, as what I'm going to reinvent it as. And and no one takes him at his word. And even though he just saved, you know, this family and this village from these these thugs, they reject him. But he still, regardless, is going to identify with his family, which he knows is crazy, and identify with his nation, which he knows has waged war on the rest of the world. Um, and he's going to just stick to that. And meanwhile, we have Korra, who's doing the opposite of that. And I just think that that's it's so cool. And clearly, I mean, if the creators are drawing that parallel, they really feel Zuko was a protagonist on that level of Korra and, and, and Aang. Um, so I, I just... I thought that was really cool. Yeah, no question Zuko is on the level of, of Aang. And it, well, you know, I just remember there's a whole episode in season one which is uh, entirely dedicated to telling Aang's backstory and Zuko's backstory. We learn the story of why Aang left the temple, and we learn the story of how Zuko got his scar, these defining moments is that, in their recent history. Is that the storm? Episode. The storm, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's... Yeah, Zuko... Zuko's such a great character, you're right. And um, Zuko alone is such a great episode, and you're, what I think is interesting is that um, there's a lot to be said about identity in these two episodes, like you just mentioned, and a lot, several times in Korra alone, we have people saying, are you sure she's the Avatar? Are you sure? Because they, because they don't recognize her as that, even though she, for a while, is insisting that she is, and by the end she just says, you know what, I, 
I'm if people people don't recognize me as this, I'm not even going to bother. Right. Whereas that Zuko alone is all about Zuko. At first, he begins the episode hiding who he is, and at the end, he starts to accept it and he's rejected for it. They're both kind of rejected for trying to claim their true identities, um, like Korra's uh, but, failure to stop. Right, the but it's thieves. it's like the timelines re- reversed, where she's exactly, rejected yeah. at the beginning and then says, "Well, I can't be myself clearly, so I'm going to be someone else," and he can't be someone else so he, you know and he's rejected for that so he becomes yeah so it's interesting and 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 but they are rejected for their true identity and that's because that carries with it a, a stigma um for Korra they expect something out of her uh positive and she can't deliver and for Suko they expect something negative and he does something positive and they don't care so yeah it's it's a it's an interest it's a really interesting choice that they made i wasn't expecting this episode at all um to remotely draw from that but if you have to draw from somewhere i would argue zuko's the place to do it you know like so i i've complained a lot about Korra not having development and you know it's old hat by this point but i think Korra, um if you're gonna if you're going to improve her character development arc and i think they really have been i i will definitely um I'll definitely admit to that that they're they're trying to really make her interesting, and I I do have I really I feel for her especially this season and 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 probably the second half of last season. If you're going to draw from somewhere to do that, Zuko's a good place to do it. You know, what's also interesting is that well, if you take the parallels between Zuko and Aang as a given, uh, they spend a lot of t- a lot of time in Korra alone, trying to distance Korra from Aang. You know, we have this. You know, the moment where you see Aang's picture and he's very happy, and Korra's picture, which is, you know, that just one bit of Korra's smile is so, like, it's it's funny, but it's also, like, horribly sad. Um, So that's, and they're trying to, you know, create this, um, this opposite, the setting them up as as opposite forces. And, And like you, we were talking about earlier with Katara talking about, you know, how did you how did you think Aang feel felt when when something more traumatic happened to him, and you know trying to take and it's also what, which what is not kind of, what by the way you should not say that to someone who's like going to yeah that's try. true you know what I mean like I, I just want to be clear like I've wanted to say that to her this is not the time <laughs> but I've wanted that to, so I just want to be clear like I didn't think that was the time necessarily to you know be like hey Aang had to deal with stuff every Avatar I think has had to deal with stuff. I think Katara had good intentions, and I think the way she should have closed that speech is probably, hey, other avatars had to deal with bad stuff, and they got through it, and you're them. But she doesn't say that part. She just says, hey, man, stuff sucks all around, so get over it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) which is maybe not as helpful, but... Um, But yeah, it's it's interesting that they are taking Korra away from her avatar identity by taking her away from Aang, and I wonder where they're going with this, that they're very deliberately and very explicitly pushing her towards Zuko. Yeah. And it's hard to... Right now, it's hard to line their characters up uh, in terms of arcs. It just didn't... is a way to predict where Korra might be going. Um, So I I wonder how how they're going to translate what we know about what happened to Zuko uh, after this point into where Korra is going. Because that's very clearly they're trying to make us think about that. And I would actually argue the most useful people... Uh, the most useful advice she's gotten so far from people from the old show were Iroh and Zuko at this point. I think they've given the best advice. Yeah. Um, you know, Zuko, I, I, I've talked about that before. When he, he gives advice to her, I think I thought it was spot on. Um, and Iroh's advice is always, like, transformative <laughs> in, like, crazy ways. I mean, she's, you know, there's that whole scene where she's a kid and that she's an adult in the spirit world and everything. Um, so, yeah, I... I think they're doing more with that than we realize, and it'll be it'll be cool to go back and look at this whole series and look at this season when it finishes, but just the whole series as you know, and and compare the arcs in a an interesting way because the series are totally different uh, in in you know pretty much every fashion, but the two characters clearly have a lot going on. I wonder if what we're gonna see is this you know not a a, a less literal translation of Zuko's arc, and more just this complete transformation of who Korra is in these final episodes. Because if you remember the whole back half of season three, every single one of those episodes is really about Zuko. 
And there's the whole you know, the joke about everyone goes on a life-changing field trip with Zuko. But that, that's, you know, it's true. They ended a whole episode with Zuko helping Sokka do something and helping Aang do something and helping Katara do something. And the, a large chunk of the final episodes of the series are not about Aang, they're about Zuko. Right. Right, um, and like I said, you get so much of the finale dedicated to Zuko's fight. And I think yeah. part of it, we find it really interesting and cool that they gave this at first, it seems like side or villain character so much. But I think as the series developed, they started to realize they had this really interesting character and they just kept giving him more and more screen time. And they were like, hey, wait a minute, this character is awesome. Like, we should do more with him. Um, and people responding to him. And, you know, I think that was part of it, too, is that people really liked the character. But um, I think it was also a learning experience. I don't know that it was all planned from the get-go. And I think that's part of this, is that it wasn't planned from the get-go, that they were going to have all this stuff happen with Korra, but I think that now that they have time, they can examine it in a broader scope, and we're seeing the ramifications in these two seasons. Exactly, yeah. Oh, it's it's very interesting to think about. Um, it, well, like like we said in, in our last episode, it's hard to talk about this stuff without knowing the full scope of the season and therefore the series and I think definitely it's going to come into focus in a big way um, over the next uh, what 11, 11 weeks mm-hmm. well you know and when was the last time you said that about a, an animated series I don't I don't, can't really judge it yet I have to see how it fits into the grander you know narrative what <laughs> exactly. it's, it's so cool I, I don't even think of Korra in that context like it's it's completely beyond like oh this is a cartoon butt, um, which I think you know, the last Airbender had to you know overcome in a lot of ways, is you know it's a cartoon but it has all this really interesting stuff. I think yeah, Korra is definitely at the point where it's like this is a show that I watch and look at how interesting it is. Oh, it's you know it's animated, but who cares? Like yeah, I don't even that doesn't even occur to me when I'm watching it that it's animated. Right. Although <laughs> except for when you get those great you know like when we first see the. Um... You know, when she's meditating in the tree and you see the spirits floating outside and one of them looks straight out of, you know, beginnings. It's like weirdly 2D. Um, well, the spirit that she talks to, I'm pretty sure that voice was was the voice of a spirit in beginnings. Oh, was it? even the exact design. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I wanted to mention that spirit. That spirit reminded me a lot when she goes into the swamp and this leads me into the last bit, which obviously we have to talk about. Yep. <laughs> um, when she goes into the swamp and she's following this little flying thing, um this little flying spirit who the dog turns into, it reminded me a lot of the flying boar from the swamp uh, that Aang follows because, um, you know, when he's following who he, we later find out to be Toph, you know, figure out it's Toph, but we have no idea who this is at that point. Um, And so I think that was intentional because it's sort of like, if you recognize, you know, you're in a swamp, you're following this flying little creature thing, you know, what's that going to lead to? Um, and then when it's revealed that it's tough, of course. Although I feel like the trailer sort of gave that away. That was a second episode reveal. You know, yeah. I don't know. That was weird. Oh, uh, you know, I really wish they hadn't put that in the trailer. Because, like, as soon as her eyes open in that scene, I know what they're doing. Right. I know exactly, oh, it's okay, it's going to be tough. But, but there's so reveal... many clues in this. That clearly, was meant. this episode was meant to clue you in that that might be what's happening. But I don't. I don't think it would have, like... Like I obviously I recognized those clues right off the bat because I know she's gonna see Toph at some point. It's in the trailer, but I feel like if we if that wasn't in the trailer, then it just would have been more of a surprise. No, no, I agree. yeah, and I, that it would have been able to come together when you see that. It's like oh, that's what they're doing. Oh man, exactly, exactly. But you know what can you do? You can only see something for the first time once. Yeah. Um. So so Toph. Um. <laughs> so what did you what did you think about this this scene? Um, it's very brief, wanna... and we don't know what you know what's going to happen. But do you want to go right into Star Wars because I got some things, <laughs> man? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I saw a great picture of the fa- of the Phantom Korra, and the caption says, "You must go to the Dagobah system." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly so. And then with the Airbenders being Jedi, which they said they f- knew full well they were turning yeah. them into these international peacekeepers, and they were like, "Nope, yeah, they're Jedi." They've said that in meetings internally, apparently. So, yeah, they know full well that they're doing some Star Wars stuff here. Yeah, you go, going into the swamp and she fights, you know, the fight with herself that happens in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. He fights Darth Vader in the swamp and he cuts off the head and it's his face. Yep. This is, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to reduce the whole discussion of the scene to just it's about it's Star Wars, but it's 
really Star Wars. It really is. It really, it's so, like hundred and ten percent Star Wars. So I think we can agree then that um, Kuvira is is her father. <sighs> I really was like, oh, is he gonna <laughs> is he gonna say like a another parallel? It's no, <laughs> no, okay. No, I, I, have, I have nothing to contribute. No, I agree. I I think this is very. Star Wars, and I've seen the, you know, fan art well before. When we first saw the trailer, I think people had, you know, drawn the fan art with Toph on Korra's back, you know, giving her, you know, like, uh, sagely advice, exactly like Yoda, and I, I thought that was pretty funny, but... Yeah, people called this whole subplot... People called the line that she says at the end of this episode. I saw, like, it, half a dozen people before this aired say, wouldn't it be great if when we see Toph, this is what she says, and the episode ends? Like independent of each other everyone kind of figured that out it's a little it's a little obvious but it was like i don't know i i I admit i got a little uh a little a little bit of a nostalgic uh you know choked up for that that moment i was skeptical of it when i saw people suggesting it i was like oh i'd be a little a little you know forced but But it got in the moment it works so well (laughs) yeah um oh come on Um, but, uh, I, 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 I thought the scene played really well. I think they've cast someone very appropriate, whoever they've cast for Toph. Um, I think that, that fits and, uh, I love her design. I like that she's living in a swamp. I don't know why she's living in a swamp. Yeah, that is, that's weird because... Doesn't seem like her vibe at all. Yeah, well, I mean, how does she get around? It's all, like, water. (laughs) It, it seems like her... I, obviously, she's a, I think a much more advanced Earthbender than when we last saw her as a whatever is it eleven or twelve. I'm not concerned for her safety. I just yeah, exactly. I, it doesn't seem like a like she hates water. She hates yeah. I like you know there was the whole exactly and um, in the Serpent's Pass she was really upset. Or I think there's sequences where she's on ice or she's on yeah she's trying to get across. I think it's in that episode she's trying to get across the ice out of the water and she can't see and yeah she hates it. And in the uh, in the desert like even the sand is too loose and yeah exactly it, it's useless to her. Um, so it's it is but this is the first time we've seen her in a swamp not as a spiritual apparition or whatever. It's actually her because the last time we saw her in a swamp was when Aang was seeing her from a distance and it wasn't actually her. So it's cool to see her here, you know, in in this context. Yeah, I wonder if it is. Yeah, it, it's weird, and I'm though I'm sure like they can reveal in the next episode that she is such such an incredibly powerful Earthbender now that she can you know use the seismic sense in this mud of the swamp. Oh and, yeah, you know. I'm sure, well she was training in the comics. I think she trains with sandbenders or something because she's so irritated that she can't do it. Or I, I don't know if it's in the comics or I think it's in the comics. Or she mentioned something about sand bending, and I think that I think she mentions in. Oh no no no! I think maybe it's Su Yin who says she works with sandbenders. And I if Su Yin did, huh. I feel like maybe Toph had to. Yeah, that she was traveling. To... Yeah, I think you're right. So I don't. Somebody mentioned it, but I think Toph has. You know, so I think she's she's really she, every time there was something she couldn't do. She obviously that wasn't going to last very long. She's had time, she, and <laughs> she's had time, and she's been alone. It seems like. Um, yeah, and it, she's she's dressed in her outfit from uh, the original series. What do you think that's all about? It looks like a variation on that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a little more. But what else would she be wearing? I don't know. Well, I mean, in the flashbacks, she's been well. The only time we've seen her in flashbacks, she's been in the Republic City uniforms. Right, of course. It makes sense that she wouldn't be wearing that, I guess. But I think it's interesting that they deliberately like she looks exact. The outfit is exactly almost what she was wearing I, you know, in the original they, series. Because every other character grew up, became like really mature and did their own thing. It doesn't seem like Toph ever did that. So maybe no, she's yeah. just, maybe she left being a cop because she was like, I can't, you know, like I, this is like being adult. I don't want to be adult. Being yeah, adult well, sucks. It, you know, I mean, you know, she hated being in her house. She, she wanted to travel and do her own thing. And maybe that's like her way of, you know, saying she's still kid like, you know, I remember in that flashback, we got to her last season trying to deal with, uh, Lin and Su Yin and, and what happened and she's just, yeah, she looks so just frustrated and angry that she can't and the the decision she makes to let Su Yin get away with it is not a, you know, mature police captain decision. So it's yeah, it's definitely, you definitely get the sense that this is not what she ever wanted out of life and this is not really who she is and she maybe, uh, maybe like, you know, once she felt that Lin and Su Yin were capable enough metal benders 
to teach, confidently teach others, she just kind of left because, you know, I, I passed that on, so now I can, now I feel comfortable going out and doing my own thing. She starts a school in, um... Oh, that's right, that's right. So she's, I forgot so about that. that. So that's self-sustaining. I, 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 I did read those comics, to, yeah. She just had to be sure that Zhao Fu was, yeah. you know, taken care of. Yeah, well, anyway, so I, I do worry about next episode being, um, like, totally going back and not involving Korra, and that'll just really be annoying because, um, not because I, I, I think I would be more than happy to catch up with the other characters, but like, you can't introduce old Toph who is on the good, on the like, not Fire Nation side, probably my favorite character. And as I think that's true of many people, um, and then not follow up with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm sure now that they're, um, back in the present, now that Korra's back in the present day, that they'll be able to uh, cut between the storylines. I hope so, um, because I I want to catch up with everyone, but I really want to see what's going on with Toph. Because yeah, I mean, I think it speaks for itself. We're we're intrigued by what she's been up to, and then I don't think we have an idea. Do, do we know what next episode is? Is yeah, it's um, I think just today they they said on their Twitter it's called the Coronation, which makes me very happy because if you recall um, what I said about Prince Wu. Yeah, our last episode, I said, I think I said exactly this. Like, look, if in the next episode or two, they don't do the coronation and pay off the storyline, and he just keeps goofing off with, uh, with Mako for episodes on end, it's going to get old and tired. So I'm glad that they're like not wasting any time with what this character is uh, building towards. Um, yeah, glad that they're getting Prince Wu. Well, I don't want to say getting out of the way because I don't know how they're going to deal with it, but well, I dealing you know with him. I get the impression this is a total prediction. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I I do think that it's going to be rudely interrupted by. I, I think it's going to go off without a hitch, and there's going to go nothing wrong. No, yeah. nothing dramatic or interesting. It's just the whole episode is going. We're going to watch the ceremony. Now, is it coronation or is it coronation? <laughs> it's a pun. It could be. It would be funny if they made it that way. Um. Cool. So, uh, so the coronation, and so we'll see Prince Wu and his inevitable um, downfall, or Kuvira's sudden appearance. I have a feeling, or it'll go off without a hitch, like you said. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, it was a pleasure, and I look forward to discussing the next episode with you next week. All right. All right.